the unseen. And I'm your host, Mike Cleland. On this episode, I will be talking with Aaron John Gullius, and he runs a wonderful podcast series called The Saucer Life. And he talks about uh, a lot of things, but mostly the golden age of the UFO contactee. He has wonderful stories from the 50s and 60s about these very colorful characters that defined the early years of America and the world's fascination with flying saucers. Now, Aaron is a historian by trade, and he's also an author, and I'm just going to read off a list of his books. Um, One of them is titled Extraterrestrials and the American Zeitgeist, and it is subtitled Alien Contact Tales Since the 1950s. He also wrote Conspiracy Theories, and this is subtitled The Roots, Themes, and Propagation of Paranoid Politics and Cultural Narratives. He also wrote a book called The Chaos Conundrum, and that's the one book that I have read of his, and it's quite good. And he wrote yet another book titled The Paranormal and the Paranoid, and this is subtitled Conspiratorial Science Fiction Television. And one more, he wrote a great big book titled Teaching History with Newsreels and Public Service Shorts. Uh, This interview is a little bit long, so I'm going to keep this introduction short. And during the interview, we reference a few articles in the New York Times, and I will give you, the listener, a way to find those links. I'll explain that at the end of the show. And one more thing, I purposely wanted to do this interview because I knew that it would be fun. And this is a fun interview, and I have to thank Aaron for that. Uh, He addresses these themes, these historical themes, with such a level of enthusiasm and playfulness, and I really respect that. And, And it was a ton of fun, and I needed that. So, this audio conversation was recorded Saturday, April 18th. 2020. Please enjoy. Aaron, I want to thank you so much for saying yes to this interview. It means a lot to me. Well, thanks, Mike. Thanks for having me on. My pleasure. Hey, I have, for the last week, been binging on your podcast, uh, The Saucer Life. I know you've written books. I've only read one of them, but I've really been enjoying the show. It's really been you know, I feel like I'm kind of up to speed, or let's let's put it this way. I used to feel that I was up to speed on a lot of the uh, <laughs> the uh, contactee type things, and I realize now that I am not, and it's, so it has been very, very educational. Well, good. That's the that's the goal. The goal is that it's it's accessible for for people who are interested in the topic but really don't know anything, and I hope it's interesting enough for people who do have a decent background in the subject to find some angles that they might not have uh, been aware of before. So it's sort of a mix of of the big stuff, and I I avoid some of the super big stuff that everybody else covers, but uh, that mixed with a generous helping of people um, people in events that most, uh, most have never um, never heard of or never really known much about. I mean, they may have heard of somebody like, um, 
oh gosh, I'm, uh, Orfeo Angelucci, but not really known much about his story. Or they might have heard about Maury Island, but just in connection with the Men in Black or something like that. And then I try to sort of flesh it out in ways that uh, ways that other people haven't. Probably the only the only topic I am still after th- almost three years steadfastly refusing to cover is Roswell. Uh, mostly because God, I God just, bless you for that. I just I, nobody needs to hear more about Roswell. It's it's just not necessary. Uh, Mac Tony's was very concise, and he said Roswell has morphed into mythology. Yes, exactly, exactly. It's, it is on the other side of the line. It is it's. I, what's the term like the like it's it's I don't want to say it's become a religion, but it has become that kind of. Yeah, it's Roswell is very much the it, it's somehow less than the sum of its parts. If you take every bit of information and testimony about Roswell and, and theorizing about Roswell since Roswell became a thing back in the 70s with the. With the um the book that that Burlitz and I think and I think Moore. that was technically 1980 if I'm not yeah mistaken. I think I think it was 80 I think the, the, hey, the hey what, what are we talking about we we said we're not going to talk about Roswell Look, let's I go. know oh so. God you you can't avoid it um since that era everything if you take everything that's that's been done every time somebody tries to add more or a new angle or a new take on Roswell somehow we end up knowing less because whatever might have happened just gets diluted that much more it's like jesus going to india right i mean it it is it's like okay did jesus go to india well if so hey that's great does it change the fundamental nature of christianity not much so it's it's one of those things like this is fascinating (laughs) um what do we know about it we we know that some people think he went to india it's like oh uh, okay that that dynamite great um yeah yeah that's a that's a good uh that's a good parallel yeah. So here, so for our listeners, what is Saucer Life? Yeah, I probably should have led with that. I'll do an intro, so I get to say it ahead of time, <laughs> but I want to hear you say it. Oh, good. Um, the Saucer Life is, according to um, according to what I say every episode, is a podcast of flying saucer history and lore. So I'm not trying to solve the mystery of UFOs. I am not trying to debunk other people's explanations of what UFOs are, but rather every other week I will examine one um, one aspect, person, event, concept in the world of UFOs or orbiting the world of UFOs and sort of take anywhere from usually 45 minutes to an hour to sort of dissect that and uh, and and investigate it and um, I'm a I'm a historian by training and profession, so there's lots of primary sources. I, I like to use documents. I, I like to use actual things from the time in which something happened, or or things that our subject actually said, in order to bring out the story, rather than relying on on secondary sources and and sort of reference stuff. So, um, it's. Uh, the, the way I, I sort of explain it to people is it's like Dan Carlin's hardcore history, but without flying saucers and not eight hours long. And it comes out more than what, like twice a year or something. So that kind of approach, um, but about flying saucers. And in your intro of your show, you say no snark. And then sometimes you say snark when appropriate. Yeah, we've we've we uh, the royal we. Um, we, we have, uh, well, I've, I've got a guy who advises me, but, um, 
we have moved towards just being sort of honest and saying snark when justified because sometimes it's um it's justified it just with some of these characters that are out there uh sometimes you you get to be a little snarky and and it's 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 sort of okay but for the most part when when experiencers present themselves in a way that is sincere I try to sort of examine them, you know, sort of taking them at their word, sort of examining what they claim happened to them rather than um, you know, listening or talking about, I don't know, George Adamski and saying, well, obviously this man was lying and he was a fraud. So because because you're not going to get a whole episode out of that. Right. I mean, if you if you take that sort of super, I don't even want to say skeptical, but that kind of dismissive attitude there's really there's nowhere to go with it and it, it's not interesting and um there are people out there who who blog who i i generally agree with who will dissect episodes of tv shows that are out there and and, and you know this was wrong and this was wrong and this was unsupported and it's like well yeah all of that's true but so what you know i know that from watching the show nobody needs to have i'm not even going to mention what show usually gets dissected but you don't need to have the dissection happen people are smart enough to know you know what might be sort of objectively true and what might not i think it's more interesting to examine the claims and the context of those claims and where those claims fit both into the history of ufos and american history or or world history and and sort of look at it uh, look at it that way so snark can be there when somebody is obviously running a uh, some kind of um some kind of grift or some kind of scam and and there are some examples of that out there but if it's just you know a guy who had an encounter and published a little pamphlet about it why am i going to make fun of that you know that's it's not interesting to make fun of um there are people who deserve to be made fun of and i will make fun of them well Snark when justified. That's right. I might uh, ring the little snark bell if I catch you doing it in the show here, which is all fine because I get snarky <laughs> sometimes too. The one person I find that I've really been uh, – and this is partially because there was a recently – and I don't remember the name of it. I'll, I'll put it in the show notes at the end if I can remember. There was a, a pretty good like Netflix documentary on George Van Tassel and, and his Integratron. Oh, really? Hey, this is Mike. I am chiming in during the editing. I looked the movie up. It is called Calling All Earthlings, and it is about George Van Tassel and the Integratron, and it was from 2018, so just a couple of years ago, and it looks like it can be easily rented online from all kinds of platforms. Okay, back to the interview. But yeah, it was pretty good. There was a lot of footage and and uh, interviews with people who knew him and stuff. I, I thought it was really, really engaging, and it was pretty good. You know, he... So he is one of those sort of genuine ones. Like he basically claimed to have channeled the instructions on how to build this great big uh, spruce building without any nails, without any metal nails. Right, right. Yeah, Van Tassel was um, absolutely just sort of foundational. I mean, he doesn't get he doesn't get the recognition that he deserves sometimes as part of UFO history, especially the contactee side of UFO history, because people like George Adamski get a lot more attention. And then 
you know, people jump to Albert Bender and the Men in Black, and and that gets attention. And George Van Tassel sort of gets talked about. People mention the Integratron, and people mention the uh, the conventions he would run at uh, Giant Rock during the 50s and 60s, and I think the last one was in the might have been in the early 70s. But what they don't usually talk about as much is the fact that you know in his his channelings he basically comes up with the whole pantheon of Ashtar stuff and the whole Ashtar crew um, in their ships orbiting Earth, protecting Earth, that continues to this day that would be taken up by successors and, and rivals and there would be there would be conflicts over money and how commercial people were being with it. And the whole Ashtar thing continues um, all the way to the present. And during the 80s, um, there was a woman named uh, named Tuella who would uh, who would channel Ashtar. And so if you've seen books like Ashtar, Project World Evacuation, and, 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 th- and Ashtar, A Tribute, which is just this sort of hagiographical sort of all the people in the spaceships talking about why they love Ashtar, that all goes back to uh, to George Van Tassel. And it's this major, major chunk of of UFO lore that he never really gets associated with as much as he gets associated with the Integratron and giant rock, which I mean, both of those are, are also just huge and fascinating, but Van Tassel really gets kind of brushed aside sometimes. Uh, well, but at the same time, recently, this is in the last few years, there was a, a very good, New York Times Magazine article about George Van Tassel, and also a very good, I think it was The Atlantic. They came out within a, within a couple of years of each other. And they were not snarky at all. They basically painted him as an eccentric character and were what seemed to be entirely fair in the way they presented him in like mainstream journalism. I mean, it doesn't get more mainstream than The New York Times. And that's what's fascinating because you got the you got the Times and you got the Atlantic and you've got a documentary series on Netflix that I apparently really need to go watch when we're done recording this. Um, you might have to search for it a little bit. I can't remember, but I think we watched it on Netflix. That sounds that sounds really cool. And you've got all this mainstream coverage. When's the last time you saw a mainstream or in quotes mainstream UFO news site talking about George Van Tassel? Just, just recently. <laughs> so, really? Okay. Well, I mean, they, the the the, the uh, documentary. I would say was it within the last three years or so. Well, I mean, think about the top five places where people who are into UFOs go for their paranormal news. Do you see a lot of stories about George Van Tassel? Uh, the Saucer Life uh, covers it. Cover. I don't know. Actually, have you covered him? Yes, a while ago, way back at the beginning. But if I go to um, UFOs today or or I, that's not a real thing, but you know, you can, you can imagine these sort of UFO things and they're all about light. When's the last time MUFON did a good article in their journal on George Van Tassel? Yeah, I, I don't subscribe to the journal, so yeah, yeah n- nobody does, <laughs> but, um, oh, you can ring your snark bell on that. Yeah, ding, ding, but, ding. Yeah. I think I looked up recently. They had less than 3000 members, but I'll uh, that it's on, about 2,500 so. more than they deserve. But, um, <laughs> You know, you, the, you know, the, I got to get a bell here somewhere. So. The, the hardcore saucer people have been rejecting the contactees in a lot of ways for a long time. It, it's sort of the descendants of the NICAP crowd, sort of the nuts and bolts. You know, these are these are structured craft from other planets and we need to know what the Air Force knows. And these contactees are sort of distracting us from getting to the truth and to get 
good coverage of people like George Van Tassel, I think it's great that we can rely on things like the Atlantic uh, to to sort of cover those stories. So I think the, the fact that you've got real mainstream news sources talking about George Van Tassel in a um, I was going to say respectful way, but at least not a disrespectful way um, sort of demonstrates that as far as you know, sort of an important sort of thing in the culture you know, there are people who recognize that and it's not necessarily the people who are running the big UFO conventions every year. Correct. Hey, I'm going to interrupt. We're going to take our very first break. For non-members, you will hear a few commercials. For paying members, we will be right back. We are back on The Unseen with my guest, Aaron Gullius, and we are talking about his blog, The Saucer Life, as well as his expertise as a historian in the contactees that that bygone era of of colorful characters i think that's fair to say without without painting the snark brush too boldly <laughs> and uh just before the break we were talking about george van tassel and we've we had mentioned the integratron a few times but can you fill in for folks, you know, what the Integratron actually is or what it's suspected to be? Let's put it that way. Yeah, the, the Integratron was a, a structure that uh, that Van Tassel, he, he got the instructions on how to build it in a, a unique way, um, you know, channeled from uh, from, I, I believe, probably Ashtar. But it's um, a I'm trying to think of how to describe it. It's a it's a building with a dome. And I probably round. It's got a dome. The dome has windows all around the side. It sort of looks like a funky observatory. Is probably the the best way I can um, think to uh, think to say it. And the shape of it and the the structure of it was supposed to, um, if I'm remembering this right, uh, sort of like to channel energy in to renew people and and sort of channel like earth energy and um and things like that for renewal and like rejuvenation and if i'm remembering what i've read correctly and it's been a while since i've read it van tassel sort of sort of said not only was information channeled but if you look in the old testament and and the design of of the uh, the hebrew tabernacle in in the old testament and um, I think he mentioned Tesla as uh, as providing um, the Tesla's ideas went into it, um, as well as as what he got from uh, from Ashtar and that crowd. It's sort of located. Um, they talked about sort of the location being important. He was directed to build it at the uh, the place um, near Joshua Tree in California. Um, 20- Landers, California. Yes. Just outside of Joshua Tree National Park. Yeah. OK. Okay, so that place was it sort of ties into earth energy type stuff, and so those energies are channeled through the structure for the benefit of those uh, are the for those who are inside. And uh, Van Tassel died in uh, in 1978. I yeah 78. I'm almost positive, and um, it's. Uh, it's still going uh, to open to visitors. You can you can buy a ticket and you can have. I think they do sound baths in there. They do sound baths. Yeah. So my partner Andrea does sound baths. So directly under where I am sitting here, I'm on the second floor. On the first floor, the living room, we must have a we. Andrea has, I think, seven, eight huge gongs, and probably I don't know. 
many dozens of crystal bowls and and brass bowls and there's something she has called a monochord and stuff like that so when when the subject of the of the integratron comes up you could see her eyes get all misty she wants to play in there so bad it has as any dome has reverberating acoustics so you ring a crystal bell in the integratron and i can i can only imagine how long that that tone gets held in the air um so a couple things about the integratron i mentioned this before i think it's built entirely out of spruce um i know it's wood i know it's all wood I, but spruce, with no nails yeah. Right, right. It's all sort of interlocking. It's, it's all yeah. interlocked. There's no nails. It's like uh, it's Amish. Like it's like an Amish barn, you know. <laughs> uh, George Van Tassel worked for Howard Hughes, or Hughes Aerospace. Right. Um, right. And so, my understanding is the spruce was donated by someone with a lot of money at the Hughes Aerospace uh, enterprise, and it's there's like the whisperings is that it was Howard Hughes himself. Whoa. So, I don't know that for a fact, though, but that's kind of like one of those little – it probably isn't, but I it's a good story. I choose to, I choose to believe it. Yeah, <laughs> yeah so don't, don't let anything get in the way of a good story. That's right. And get back to the Tesla kind of thing where – I th now, I'm, I'm doing this from reading these articles. Uh, I think it was after George Van Tassel died, the, there was a machine in the basement that was – <laughs> rumored to be a time machine, right? So you'd have this big right. structure, earth energy, and this special machine in the basement of the dome um, that would, that would, whatever, had the capabilities, let's say, of doing magical things like time travel. Uh, that has since disappeared. Nobody knows where it went, and it disappeared after he died. So that's got that kind of um, uh, Nikola Tesla thing where the FBI came and stole all his right. all his papers right. after he yeah. died. The, the FBI charged into his apartment and and and, and uh, carried off all his intellectual property there. And and similar myths surround George Van Tassel. Yeah, and I, I think um, with with Tesla, I think another entity that that often gets brought into it with uh, with everything vanishing is the Office of Naval Intelligence is often sort of fingered as, as being behind sort of the uh, confiscation of uh, of his papers, and uh, the the ONI has often sort of popped up in various UFO conspiracy theories over the years as as being so. I always always liked that little bit of symmetry that the Office of Naval Intelligence might be might be behind something. Hey, I have a funny little story with that involves owls oh. uh, that's connected a little bit to, to your uh, subject that's near and dear to your heart. So when I was initially started doing this owl research, I was getting so many amazing stories about owls and UFOs, owls and UFOs. But when I looked up the mythology of owls, like death is the first thing that comes up in like mm -hmm. even, you know, mainstream kind of interpretations of what an owl what the folklore is, is death. Wisdom, not so much. Death is very much connected to owls. And I was like, oh, I'm so bummed out. I don't have a single story. No one sent me a story about death. And I get this story. And it's this man who says, oh, I, you're doing owl research here. I have a story for you. He told me this beautiful story about him and his wife. And, and his wife's father had died. He was in a hospital and he um, died in the hospital, and the wife stayed with her father and took care of business at the hospital while the husband 
drove back home in order to get like a suit, basically, because he had mm-hmm. to do all these formal things to prepare for the uh, funeral. So going driving from the hospital, this was in Minnesota, I think. Uh, so he had to drive past his wife's father's home. And as he passed, there was an owl on a telephone pole at the house. He had never seen an owl there before. And he had the immediate thought, which I kind of trust in this research. He had the immediate thought that it was his wife's father. Mm. And he explained that his wife has since died and he wanted to share this story with, with, and he felt like it was, it was like his wife's father looking at the old farm one last time. It was a really sweet, heartwarming story. And I, I sent him a note back saying, thank you so much for sending this story. And I, and I was like, I finally got an owl story that didn't have anything to do with UFOs. <laughs> and then he got back to me and he said, oh, I, I looked up your site. Um, and you do UFO stuff? And I said, yeah. He said, oh, my wife used to channel the Ashtar command. Oh, my goodness. And I was like, dang. I, I like, <laughs> like, oh, I thought I had one. I thought I had one. I've since had many. Thought but you escaped. I thought I escaped. Yeah. And nope. So there was, so yes, I couldn't get away from it. Wow. The, the owl UFO connection. That's great. Wow. Of all the, the sort of UFO things to come up with, it was like my wife channeled Ashtar. That, that. It's, it's one of the more rare. It's like I saw a light in the sky once. It's, no, no, no. She channeled Ashtar, and it was channeling Ashtar yeah. is quite a quite a chasm. And that, you know, it's funny because I've read some of the Ashtar stuff, and it, and it, I've read. I went through a phase where I read a ton of channeled material, and there's this mm-hmm. kind of, I don't know, this kind of universal story that plays out, you know, within all of it. So, um, it it gets. I mean. This sounds very cynical, but it all starts to run together and sound the same after a while. There are some exceptions there, and I would say that there are. There are. The the Seth material is one of them. Oh yes, absolutely. Um, But uh, but for the most part, I mean, you you read Ashtar, and then you read everybody else who's channeled Ashtar, and it's like this is what Ashtar said in 1957. Man, does Ashtar have anything new to say? Um, But it's it, it does get kind of it does get kind of samey. And, and so that makes the stuff that's distinct jump out all the more, which is kind of nice. But but yeah, the, the Ashtar stuff is, you know, and, and of course there's other weirdness. And I haven't done an episode about this. I think I talked, and I talked about it in the episode that's a recording of a talk I did in Halifax at a, at a conference uh, Paul Kimball put together. But um, there was a newspaper or newsletter back in the 90s called the Phoenix Liberator that was supposedly material channeled from Hatan, who was one of one of Ashtar's guys um, up in orbit. And it was just sort of supposedly channeled from this space being, but it was all just the most rabid sort of extremist conspiracy theory stuff that you can imagine. And, and it was it was like, there's no difference between what this guy said Hatan had channeled to him and what any sort of, you know, think of the most insane 1990s conspiracy theory stuff you can think of, right? And and what that was saying. It was, you know, Hatan tells me that the Federal Reserve is blah, 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 blah. It was just like, so this is it's like a really weird sort of twisting of of this sort of channeled material, which was usually very, I'm not going to say apolitical, but sort of very, just sort of vaguely peace-oriented in its political outlook. So there's been some some sort of twisting and, and misuse of some of these 
these figures, these these um, I don't even know what to call them. These these extraterrestrial channeling figures, because if you say, hey, I channeled so and so, and they said this, you know, how do you prove that they didn't, right? So people are able to to twist some of these uh, messages in some ways. Well, yeah, I think the the, the the there's a filter in place, you know, when it so right. Yeah, I mean, there may be a beautiful source out there, but there's a filter. It's coming through a filter before it gets here. <laughs> so exactly, or, unless the unless it's Jane Roberts, I guess. <laughs> so, <laughs> uh, that was then she Jane Roberts. She's the woman who channeled uh, Seth in the Seth right. material. And there's other folks out there. I think the um, um, Course in Miracles is really beautiful. That's really poetic stuff. Yeah, it, it's it's that some of those things like a Course in Miracles is a good example where the the writing itself is like that. The actual language is is this is distinct from a lot of uh, other types of things. Yeah. And then um, Neil Donald Walsh's Conversations with God, I thought was I thought his first three books said it all. He's been publishing books since then where he's kind of repeating what he said in the first three books. So, um, which I understand that because I that but as as sounds like the Ashtar command he's basically saying the same thing over and over again or you know even though it's coming through different channels but uh yes but i think the first three books of conversations with god had a very distinct voice um and it was very very accessible yeah i haven't i think i read some it's, of the walsh stuff not a lot yeah i think you got to be in the right headspace for that it paints a really beautiful picture of of the fabric of the universe, and I and I okay. I liked it for that. So, okay, it's not a downer, that's for sure. <laughs> hey, um, have you ever been to Spoon? Um, no. Okay, just I I just listened to something just before the interview, and you're talking about a woman. I can't remember her name now. I'm drawing a complete blank on her name, and she she was bending spoons. Um. Oh, um, Greta Woodrow. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, I've. I've not, uh, I've not experienced that. No. I, you know, I did it with um, uh, Joshua Cutchin and Timothy Renner and Suzanne Chancellor. You know, you must know Joshua. Oh yeah, yeah, I know, I know, I know Josh. Yeah, yeah. So, uh, and uh, so we were at a very, very, very small conference in Rhode Island, and we all went up back to Suzanne Chancellor's house. And Suzanne Chancellor has been on the show. Uh, here a few times. I Whitley interviewed her. She's an experiencer and her partner Jack is an experiencer. So there was like this kind of vibe around their, the coffee table there. And we were drinking wine and laughing and it was it was like a party basically. And then she she walks away and she brings these spoons back and, um, excuse me, they were forks. And we just, she just did this like one minute, like this is what works. And it was basically, don't think about it. Don't think about it. Don't dwell on it. Like, look at the spoon. Imagine it bending. Think about it bending. And then set the spoon down and ignore it for about five or ten minutes. And then pick it up and bend it. And we all did it. Huh. Just like, bloop, bloop, bloop. You know, all of a sudden we're laughing and we do the holding the forks and set them down. Ten minutes go by. We all pick them up and then rip. They just bent like they were made of taffy or silly putty or something like that. That's, that, you know, um. But that reminds me of the, the don't think about it thing. It reminds me of I don't know if, if if you're familiar with Douglas Adams, um, the Hitchhiker's oh, Guide yeah, to the sure. Galaxy yeah. stuff in um, So Long and Thanks for All the Fish, where Arthur Dent uh, is learning to fly. There's there's some like the trick to flying is basically to forget to hit the ground. It's like once you forget to hit the ground, 
suddenly you're flying. And that, that sort of reminded me of that sort of don't think about it thing with the uh, the bending, the, the spoons or the forks. It's it's just sort of getting outside of the paradigm of what you think physical laws are and how they work and getting outside of that that bubble. Um, and I think that's how channeling works. Yeah, you you forget that you forget that this is where thoughts come from. And suddenly the thoughts might be coming from somewhere else. Yeah. Yeah. Hey, we need to take our second break. For non-members, you will hear a few commercials. For paying members, we will be right back. We are back on The Unseen with my guest, Aaron Gullius, and we are talking about the golden age of the contactees and what amounts to UFO history with a historian. Is it Anne Historian? Um, you know, uh, either way is fine. If you're British, say Anne. If you're not— I'm not British. Can, so. Well, then you can, you can get away with anything, okay. really. So, um, Kenneth Arnold single-handedly— ushered in the modern era of the UFO. Yes, I think that is true in some ways that people don't often think of because when they they hear Kenneth Arnold ushered in the modern age of the UFO, they think, you know, a whatever number of chevron-shaped objects skipping like saucers, you know, near Mount Rainier as he was flying. And they don't necessarily think about the stuff that happened after that initial sighting. And I know when I first got into this field, Kenneth Arnold was was in my mind, he was the guy who saw the first flying saucers and that story back in the summer of 47, right? And then later, he would sort of pop up in various places, usually in connection with, uh, with Ray Palmer, uh, the magazine publisher. And Arnold's investigation of, among other things, the, uh, the Maury Island UFO sighting I think uh, is something that that gets overlooked a little bit because Maury Island would would be a much bigger story years and years after it happened than it really was at the time. And Kenneth Arnold was in the middle of that investigating things. So I, th I think he's he's a bigger figure in the mythology than than sometimes people know. I will put a link to that specific episode because I think that is a great example of your show and the depth and. And breadth of that, and breadth. I'm, <laughs> the, I'm doing the thing where I'm like, oh gosh, now I'm got, I'm in front of the history professor, and I'm trying to use big words. Um, the depth of that episode is a perfect. It would be a perfect way in for anyone listening right now because we're never going to be able to cover all the stuff with Kenneth Arnold in that event. Um, well, a couple things. Uh, just the connection with Ray Palmer and I, did he do it for Fate magazine? Was it actually? Fate? Uh, yeah, Ray. Um, Ray started uh, started Fate uh, after sort of coming out of uh, amazing. I think it was amazing stories where he was the guy really pushing the um, Richard Shaver underground civilization Duro's thing as factual rather than as science fiction. So he was pushing sort of supposed fact in the science fiction magazine. Uh, the publisher later Ziff Davis Publishing. Um, sort of says we don't want this. Palmer leaves, um, starts roughly 11 billion other magazines <laughs> over the course of the rest of his life, but also publishes uh, books out of his uh, his company in uh, Amherst, Wisconsin. So Palmer was one of the first to start like a newsstand UFO magazine, and and just about every major story 
that happened in the 1950s and 60s found its way into the pages of fate. Um, Gray Barker got his start in the UFO field writing an article for Ray Palmer for fate um, about the Flatwoods monster in West Virginia. That was Gray Barker's first sort of paranormal writing that got published and sort of pushed him into uh, into the field. So Ray Palmer was uh, a part of that as well. So, yeah, Ray Palmer is, is one of these, although not an ex- really an experiencer himself, as, as far as I know, Ray Palmer is, is kind of this, this nexus without which ufology as we know it uh, would not look this way. Ray Palmer may or may not have been an experiencer, but he certainly had a, a weird life that plays out um, in the, the sort of cinematic way. I'm not quite paranormal, but I mean, he he's in, and I'd never read this book called The Man from Mars. Is that what it's called? It's a good, it's, uh, Fred Natus. Yeah, it's a good book. And But I did read the chapter on on uh, Ray Palmer in uh, Jeff Kripal's book, Mutants and Mystics, which is great. Oh, yeah. 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 So that's where, so I'm coming from that. And, 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 uh, I mean, he deserved his own chapter in that book. So, uh, Kenneth Arnold had a pet owl. I, yes. And that, I, when I heard that, I managed to get a hold of his daughter, Kim Arnold. And she was actually talking for a little while publicly. And I think she did a, she did some public talks and, and she has since, She's not talking much anymore, and she was amazing to talk to. She was amazing to talk to, and um, and and at this point now, Kenneth Arnold's granddaughter, whose name is Chanel Chance, and she is now talking publicly about her grandfather. So she's sort of taken over the the family role of being, I guess, uh, the spokesperson or or the voice to talk about the legacy of her grandfather. And and they're all saying the same things that like they grew up in a paranormal house. Kenneth Arnold's wife was, um, I think, from Sweden, and was like a a mystic. Like she was psychic and she would do healings. And this is quite unusual for you know the dusty plains of Idaho in what amounted to the nineteen forties and fifties. And he had a lot of UFO sightings. Oh, and he told he he told one story where he was flying in his private plane, his own personal plane, and he was flying above, uh, I guess, a craft, but he described it basically as a giant floating jellyfish in the sky. And he, f- he was flying above it so he could look down through the translucent body of this craft and see the pine trees on the ground. He could see them through the craft. And he described this floating in the same way that um, that a jellyfish would float in the ocean. Now, he also had a lot of other craft sightings that, that were completely nuts and bolts type sightings, and he said they looked as solid as a Chevrolet. Uh, now, now, it gets even weirder because his home life, I mean, he, he saw orbs in his house. This is... Really? Yeah, he had orbs wow. in his house. This is straight out of the abduction lore. You know, so my sense is, and he had an owl, which is like that kind of like all these things. Like if I had the whiteboard and and they've like, okay, let's let's see if we can total up all the things that would imply some sort of direct contact experience. I mean, he had a lot of it. I mean, plus the fact that he was convinced his phone was tapped, right? And he um he that when I read this, I just like he he had, he had a fellow interviewing him. So this this journalist wrote an article, 
And the journalist said, you know, at one point, Kenneth Arnold was getting frustrated about the narrow-minded nature of, of how research is being done. And he got frustrated and he said, oh, let me, I got to show you something. He pulls this great big book off the shelf and it was the collected books of Charles Fort. And he said, uh -huh, yeah. this guy sees the mystery the same way I do. And I was like, wow, that, and that's why I think this would have been in the 1970s when this was, this article was uh, written. So that tells me a lot. Wow, there's not a whole lot of people with the collected works of Charles Fort on their shelf. Yeah, at that time, yeah. Yeah, even now, you know. Right. So yeah. uh, I don't, I certainly don't. Um, uh, so, you know, those, all those little things just, you know, put him in the category of, of um, you know, cautiously, because I certainly don't know, put him in the category of someone who may have had a direct contact experience. And also, this is a weird detail that no one ever addresses. He said he saw, I think, nine chevrons shaped craft. Little, I think it was nine, yeah. Yeah. He radioed his report into the tower and then the tower got a hold of the newspaper so when he landed there was the press was there so he he was stuck and he had told the story and one of the headlines of the stories said you know flying saucers even though that's not what he saw but yeah but yeah. that's what people began seeing was flying saucers yeah because all you start seeing people start seeing discs and he didn't see discs he saw chevrons right I, and when i when i do a presentation have a, a picture sort of, of of like what he described and it looks like um they always look like to me the old uh, batarangs from the old uh, adam west batman show it's 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 a batarang oh, yeah exactly um but yeah not uh not discs but but everybody starts seeing discs right he he did a pencil sketch that's somewhere in the files that's that's a little less batarang than than, yeah. than, the, than the image that he's often photographed he's photographed holding a, a, an illustration that was done by a professional illustrator obviously right right i think that's the picture i use of of him uh of him holding that one yeah but the the thing is i mean him having you know fort on his uh on his bookshelf in the 70s and and saying this is this this guy this guy gets it right i think that's that sort of sort of speaks to my 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 point that i try to make to people that that this kenneth arnold was not just you know random pilot sees things and then the story took off no he was the guy who was deeply involved in aspects of it for a very long time um and and you know that's not something that often gets talked about even even beyond maury island i think i think his connection to uh, to ray palmer for example all these things sort of speak to somebody who um didn't just you know tell the press you know i had a sighting of something weird and then you know goes back to his job um doing whatever he was you know whatever business he was in uh, selling uh, uh, irrigation stuff. Yeah. yeah, irrigation equipment. No, he he remained intrigued by all of this, and because he was, you know, there at the beginning of this modern era, he wasn't necessarily locked into the the notion that these are spaceships from outer space, which you know isn't something that people necessarily were all saying in the summer of 1947. We weren't to that point yet, and sort of culturally it, that. It wasn't automatically assumed these were alien spacecraft. People didn't know what it was. Um, so you had everybody, you know, you had the whole spectrum from these are Soviet super weapons to these are American super weapons to the borderland sciences research associate people talking about ether ships and, you know, the higher beings that uh, guys like Mark Probert channeled. So there's a whole spectrum of 
theories about things before it sort of gets reduced down to the nuts and bolts flying saucer stuff that we we sort of associate with that era. And his initial sighting in 1947, I think this is in the same article where he pulls the book off the shelf. He said, I didn't talk about it then for obvious reasons, but I'm talking about it now. I'll tell you, I had telepathic communication with those craft, which is everyone. I mean, that's very common for people to say, oh, I saw a craft and I heard this telepathic voice in my head. Or So that's super common. So he's not saying anything that's not, hasn't been, you know, reported in 10,000 MUFON reports. But he waited years to say that, understandably. You know, in 1947, you would not want to blurt that out. No, absolutely not. And also, by all accounts, was a very trustworthy, stoic man, right? So pillar of the community. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And so people would come to him, especially pilots. Pilots would come to him, and they would share their experiences. And he obviously heard the weird stuff because I think that a lot of that was what was shaping his his notions of Charles Fort being an, an appropriate uh, uh, you know way to frame this strangeness. Yeah, it, it's it's not. Yeah, it, it's it's not a 1947 thing to talk about, right? So it, it's very strange, and it's it's much deeper than he usually gets uh, gets credited with. And I, I think um, has there been a, a good sort of book length biography of Arnold? No, but there should be. You know what there is is there's a ton of information out there. Like he would talk, he would say yes to interviews, he gave talks. So there's a there's a wealth of information, you know, between his daughter and his family and his granddaughter. Now there's there's some great. You know, there that that needs to be written. Yeah. If there was a historian, is there a historian that's interested in that that era of who would who could write that book? I I don't know of any. <laughs> I I really I'm, don't. <laughs> <laughs> I'm I'm planting a seed there because that book needs to be written. Oh yeah, but um, especially if his uh, if his daughter and granddaughter are 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 okay talking about it because a lot of times you know family members and and things like that are are not you know they're, they're kind of embarrassed a little bit. About yeah, Grandpa would talk about this stuff, but no, um, no, they're, they're, it's my, by all accounts, the family's completely thought he was great. <laughs> so yeah, I mean, they, that's good. I'm going to paraphrase poorly when I asked um, Kim Arnold about um, her father and such like that, and she said that you know, so she found an owl. So it was her owl, basically. She found an owl. She was with her sister. They found an owl. It was on the road. It was this little baby owl, and it was injured. It had fallen. They didn't know how. So they took it home, and he built a cage for the owl. And this would have been, I think, back in the nineteen early 1960s, maybe. And she said, you know, that cage was beautiful. Like, that was a reflection of my father, that he built a beautiful cage built it all by himself for this owl. That was really a reflection of my father's level of integrity. And she was very clear that she grew up in a wonderful household and she loved her parents. And, and so, yeah, it was, so there, there, there's nothing but reverence for him. Good. Well, that makes, that makes an eventual biography more likely. So that's. Okay. I didn't, I don't want to, I don't want to be pushy. I'll, I'll stop. I'll stop, stop trying to do a cell job on you. So I'm not, I'm okay. not going to do it. So somebody, Somebody out there, listeners, listeners, somebody uh, get on that. Um, I heard you give a list of recommended UFO books recently on one of the shows. Yeah. And one of them was Mac Tony's book, The Crypto Terrestrials. Oh, yes. So you, you were friends with Mac over the internet, and so was I. 
Yeah, yeah. And, um, commented on his blog and emailed back and forth. Yeah. And I went through the, I actually called him up on the phone. I was desperate to talk to the guy. I remember I heard him on um, Tim Benal's Benal of America. And I, oh, yeah. I wanted to talk to this guy. And this would have been around 2007 or so. And man, I was, for those two years, so let me back up a little bit. Mac Tony's was a barista at Starbucks. And he also did some of the wisest, most insightful, wry, funny, thoughtful, uh, not just about UFOs, but about um, cyberspace, about um, artificial intelligence, about the coming singularity, let's say, about technology. And he died tragically from a undiagnosed heart issue in October of 2009, which is a little over 10 years ago now. And he was my friend. I, I spoke on the phone with him often, and I never met him. And I, you know what breaks my heart? I never uh, did an interview with him. I wanted to, and he he didn't have Skype. And it was one of those oh. things where I was like, oh, I've had such bad luck doing interviews over you know, just a phone line. Right. And I just said, oh, let's, and I kind of was egging him on to get Skype, and he never did Skype. What he did do, and this is just before he died, within, I think it was two weeks before he died, he did a wonderful interview on Coast to Coast with George Norrie. Yes. And George Norrie, who's seen it all and heard every story and heard every researcher out there, you could hear George Norrie, like, you could hear George Norrie's brain just getting bigger and happier talking to Matt <laughs> on that show. And I'm not exaggerating. You can really hear it. It was, it was a great interview. And um, when I sort of started getting into into the UFO stuff more back in, gosh, 2000, 2004, 2005, um, so right around when, when Mac was, was sort of working on his blog. And so I think I heard, I think the first time I'd heard of Mac or heard Mac was, uh, he and Paul Kimball were on Greg Bishop's radio Mysterioso show. Yes, yes. And I listened to the, uh, the episode when, when, when they were in LA in the studio with Greg and I, I listened sort of coincidentally or, or synchronistically, um, while driving, uh, driving across New Mexico to, Roswell. Um, so that's when I, I was listening to that, uh, to that episode. And, um, Paul Kimball actually did a, a couple print copies of, um, sort of collecting some of Mac's writings from his blog. And I wrote the forward to the first volume. And when I was sort of working on that, what I, what I realized that Mac and I were within a couple months, the, the same age, um, we'd both gone to similar sized colleges and he was an English major and I was a, I was a history major and, and we, we just, just sort of demographically, you know, had a lot in common. And it, that's one thing that always, I always sort of, sort of connected with, with his stuff is that this wasn't, this wasn't a guy writing about these topics who was who was a generation older than me? This was a guy who was pretty much exactly my age. Um, so from the same sort of cultural milieu that I was from, and so that that sort of struck me as well. And um, if people go back and, and read, and his 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 posts are are, are archived, and, and you can find them, or you can find the the books that Paul's put out. What you're what you'll find is that his writing about anything other than UFOs is, is just as good and as fascinating as his writing about UFOs. He was just a good writer full stop. Um, and, and he was, 
he was an amazing thinker and his crypto terrestrial theory has been, I think, co-opted a little bit and expanded upon as this is this is what they really are. Now, he it was more of a thought experiment. For exactly. Him, you know, exactly, yeah. and, and so he wasn't saying, I know what the answer is because, you know, they're really a, an offshoot of humanity who's sharing the planet with us. No, it's just a way to think about it. And he would do that a lot, not just with the UFO stuff, but with other um, sort of sort of extreme technological stuff. He would do it with um, his book After the Martian Apocalypse about um, about NASA and Mars. And um, if if you've ever been turned off to that whole sort of Mars thing by some of the voices that have been in that field. For, like Richard Hoagland, uh, maybe? Oh, oh, thank you for saying this, <laughs> um, for, for For a thousand years. Read After the Martian Apocalypse because I think it's available as an ebook now for oh, an affordable price. Yes, wonderful. Um, which is, which is I think Simon & Schuster finally got their act together and got it out there for like 10 bucks or something because I found a used copy for like 30 and I was thrilled like like, like 10 years ago. You know what? Here, when I, I, I bought a used copy. This I bought it when I first met Mac. I, got a, I just went online. This is right when Amazon was kind of getting, you know, at the dawn of Amazon in a way. And um, they had a used copy or something and I bought it and it was signed. Oh, wow. I have a signed copy of After the Martian Apocalypse. Just happened to, come through the mail when I when I when I bought it used at Amazon. Wow. And and he was such a such an interesting thinker and and such a I mean his photography and and his his art that he would create photographically is is worth looking at too. He was just just yeah and this was this was the dawn of the selfie in a way, you know, this yeah. was the dawn of the digital age. I mean, he was he was on the ground floor of blogging, like that. He was like the quintessential blogger. Yeah, yeah. It was, and and that's that's an age that sort of first wave of social internet, where the internet was something more than than just static pages of text, where you had we had regular updates and interaction with in comment sections and things like that. Younger listeners may think that that's always been the way it was, but. It wasn't. And and Mac was at the forefront of that. And um, he embraced it. He, he didn't just say, oh, I like writing, so I'll write on this thing. No, he embraced that format of, of the interactivity with it and um, and interacting with other blogs and, and, and things like that. Um, every October, I reread the crypto terrestrials um, since he's since he's passed. Well, since I've gotten the book, you know, since the book came out, I've reread it. And one time I misplaced my paper copy. And so I, I hopped on the Kindle and, and bought a Kindle copy. And then of course I found my print copy. So now I, I no matter where I am, um, and I've, I've done this, I would, I'd be sitting in like a, a, a doctor's waiting room or I'm getting my oil changed or something. And I'll just pull up the crypto terrestrials and the Kindle app on my phone and read a little bit just because it's so great because he thought about the paranormal and he thought about extraterrestrials or whatever they are and um and and the world around him in a way that was um different but in a way that was familiar enough to resonate with what you might already think about the subject and make you look at it in just a different way and just a, a very valuable writer and it's amazing to think what he would have done i agree i agree it breaks my heart yeah yeah, it, it's we we missed out. There's a there's a reality out there where where 
he's <laughs> where he's out there where where he's podcasting where he was one of the first podcasters just like where he was one of the first bloggers and he would have been revolutionizing that field too you know i've talked to more than one channel and I mean, more than one channel, and in the middle of the conversation, these people who channel, and they're like, oh, Max here. Wait, what? Max here. And then it's like, I get super intimidated. Like, like they'll just blurt it out, and they'll laugh, and they'll go, oh, I like this guy. <laughs> and I'm sort of running in the circles of channelers and psychics and, and sort of the extreme end of the continuum of the of you know that realm of the experiencer, I guess. Yeah, I mean, the world lost a... So, he could have changed the way we think of UFOs. And I mean, we collectively, like the entire, he could have changed the direction of UFO thought. And I don't think I'm exaggerating by saying that. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. Um, hey, let's give a plug for, for Paul's books, those collections. Um, yes, it's uh, The Post-Human Blues, Volumes 1 and 2. And uh, they're available on uh, on Amazon. And uh, you can check those out. And... The first one, um, the first one covers a certain number of years, and the second one covers a, a, a different number of years. I can't remember offhand what the uh, dividing point is, but Volume One is is the beginning of uh, Max uh, blogging at the old posthumanblues.blogspot.com site. And that site is still up. And then there's also a, 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 a the site has been archived. Yes. And it's it's also at uh, posthumanblues.com. Yes, and that's that's very uh, valuable because you never know when um, when whoever owns Blogspot, I think it's Google, um, will you know change things and and get rid of things. And no one had his had his password. So yeah, and there's a there was a story in I think the New York Times Magazine after he passed away about his friends you know attempting to preserve his online identity, and it was it was sort of a new concept at the time. What happens when when a a sort of internet public figure passes i mean what happens to what they've created and so even in in passing away from us he was also kind of a pioneer in that way in getting people to think about an online presence as a significant and important thing in a way that they might not have before and how does he fit into this this lost era of ufos the contactees and you know how do how do you see him What's his role? What's Mac Tony's role? Oh, that's a good question because I'm not sure. I'm not sure Mac would necessarily see him in, you know, that that framework. I, I think he he always he was always a little. I'm not sure coy is the right word, but he was always a, a little sort of guarded about how he present. He sort of was off to the side a little bit. He's from the Midwest. Yeah. 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 You know, um, he's a, a fellow Midwesterner here. So as am I. Yeah. Yeah. So we, we just. Don't don't look at us and don't talk to us. Just you know, we're we're fine. Yeah. Well, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Everything's fine. We're fine. Yeah, oh, oh. Like oh, don't you bother with me. Just gonna get by you here. Um, yeah. It's uh, yeah. I, I think where he fits. I think he's very much in the uh, in the tradition of. Um, and I I want to make sure I I frame this correctly. I think he's in the tradition of a John Keel, not in the sense that he is a Keelian sort of sort of semi self promoter whose books are mostly about himself as much as about what he's investigating. Um, but I think he's like John Keel in the sense that he is a, 
good writer who could write about a huge variety of things, but for some reason was continually drawn to this particular topic of weirdness and found interesting oblique ways to to examine it. Uh, so not a John Keel person in the sense of, you know, sort of the popular image of John Keel, but the Keelian in the sense of, of being um, being sort of interested in finding interesting angles on this topic that he couldn't seem to shake. Oh, yeah. Um, because the topic just sort of clung to him in various ways. I also th- I also think and, and this I, m- I might just be picking up on, um, you know, my memories of, of Mac's admiration for William S. Burroughs and, and th- things like that. But I, I see Mac as being in um, in that realm of sort of a sort of sort of sardonic observer of the scene as well as somebody who had, you know, who's actively theorizing about things as well. He, he doesn't he doesn't fit comfortably into any of the paradigms for me. He's sort of a little here and a little there, if that makes sense. Yeah. You know who who was a big fan of of uh Mac Tony's? Jim Mosley. Oh yeah. Yeah. Which Which makes perfect sense. Now here you have to explain to the listening audience who Jim so, Mosley so was. So Jim Mosley was um what was he's been he so saucer smear he'd been around forever. Saucer smear was his was a zine was his hand typed he typed it with a typewriter yeah, and 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 xerox did at the xerox shop single space in the 21st century um <laughs> and in the 1950s he's sort of he's he's literally a, a rich young kid with i think in my opinion more money than sense and he he inherited a lot of money and and so he was gonna you know look into this ufo thing and he was initially going to write a book and he drives coast to coast interviewing like every major figure of the the mid 1950s from contactees to to nuts and bolts you know air force cover up folks and he he never write he takes him a long time to uh to write the book but he starts um the first name of it is Nexus and eventually it goes through like a dozen different titles and eventually the most the one that stuck was Saucer Smear and it was a a UFO newsletter magazine thing. But what Mosley did was was he took a very sort of not skeptical, but very sarcastic take on all this. And he paid as much attention to the the personalities and the interpersonal conflicts of the people involved as the, you know, accounts of what of what people were seeing. So he he really is sort of his his writings and his his autobiography, um, shockingly close to the truth, is just an amazing trip through his perspective of the first sixty years of uh, of ufology or so. And and so Mosley was um, just this sort of sardonic observer of uh, of ufology, and he did he did some investigation stuff himself. His newsletter. Uh, was the place where George Adamski's photos were were scrutinized to the point of collapse, and uh, he did get involved with uh, investigating the Gulf Breeze stuff back when Gulf Breeze was going on in the '90s. He was NICAP's uh, Florida State Section Chief for a while. Okay, here I would love to hear his take on that. He he was he was skeptical. Um, he he was he was skeptical. Maybe not of the sightings themselves, but of some of the people involved. Um, I it's been a long time since I've read that section of the 
of the book. The, the Gulf Breeze sighting was the book. I can't remember the fellow's name. Uh, Walters, Ed Walters. Ed Walters, yes. Yeah. And his wife's name was, I can't remember. But uh, she was like the co-author on one of them. Oh, there's more than one of those books. Okay, because that book I remember reading at the time, and I remember thinking, wow. And I'm very cautious to say what may or may not be true. But um, as the years go on, I am skeptical. That doesn't mean real events didn't happen, And but I, I'm skeptical. I know that— uh, Bruce Maccabee, yeah. Bruce Maccabee investigated that and trusts him. So that that counts for a lot in my opinion. Yeah, it was and there was there was other weirdness around it. There was um a group of um group of soldiers from a US base in Germany who went who went Oh yes, that is a totally Keelian story there. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, the the, the Gulf Breeze 6 sort of show up in Florida, you know, AWOL and and part of you know, sort of sort of cult-like activities and things like that, and 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 sort of you know on the surface not connected to the sightings that people were having, but you know the synchronicity of all of that going on. Weren't they going to kill Ed Walters or something like that? Yes, the, 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 it was it was weird. It was it was very. <laughs> it's very strange. It's feel it smells like mind control. It's it's on my list of of things to cover on an episode, but I'm going to have to wait for things to slow down a little bit in the rest of my life because that's a massive massive story so the whole gulf breeze thing but yeah so so mostly was um and he'd have different theories that he adhere would adhere to at various times and mostly shying away from the extraterrestrial hypothesis nuts and bolts spacecraft thing um toward more sort of paranormal explanations um Keelian. Keelian. It, very, very Keelian. He talked about. Hey, let's give Keelian a, a definition. I'm just, oh, uh, gosh. Um, I'll give it to you. So Good, yes. So if you follow Charles Fort, you're a Fortean, right? right. It's Charles Fort, who uh, wrote about uh, paranormal events between the 20s and 30s, I guess, and then jump ahead a few decades. And then in the 60s, 70s, and 80s, I guess his last book was in the 90s. So uh, his couple of books were in the 90s. So uh, John Keel wrote about this paranormal stuff that is uh, just outside the boundaries of simple UFO thought. And yeah, I guess that's an easy way to say it. And so if you're following his ideas, you would be referred to as a Keelian. Yeah. And, and, and sort of broadly, there's, you know, sort of the, the idea of the super spectrum there, there are layers to layers to reality and, and, and different, you know, aspects of dimensionality. And there are places that are where the where the boundary is a little bit weaker, and sometimes things bleed through. And to us, they might look like UFOs or or beings or things like that. So it's not so much they're from outer space as from another another reality that is in some ways intersecting with our own. Yeah, I did an interview just a few weeks ago, about a month ago, with a young woman named Zelia Edgar, and she is a Keelian. That is the single word that defines her her avenue of research and her thoughts on these issues. Interesting. Good to know that there are Keelians out there. Yeah, she's yeah she's under thirty and she's uh, a Keelian, which is great. <laughs> I don't think you can say that about no, many people under thirty. No. So. Um, no, most uh, most under thirty are oh, kind of married to the you're, whole. You're working at a college, so yeah. so let's not get too snarky. No, it, it, it's it's just that it, most of what's been presented in the 
if you turn on TV and you find a, a show about the paranormal, it's it's the sort of old school. This is a ghost show. This is a flying saucer show. This is a crypto zoological show, and and or ancient aliens. Oh, yeah, or or <laughs> ancient aliens. Um, and and you don't get that sort of that sort of high strangeness type stuff with a lot of these shows because it, it doesn't fit well in a forty minutes and plus commercials format, right? So you need to, to keep things very sort of workable within a television format. And um, it's nice that there are there are people out there who are, um, you know, willing to look beyond that. And one of the places you can look beyond that is with your books as well as your podcast. Hey, here's a quick question. Why are some of your podcasts titled The Saucer Afterlife? Oh, that was a sort of thing I started doing this year for the weeks when I don't have a full episode. And those are just sort of like little 10 minute things at, at ah, gotcha, that, gotcha. Are, that are just like, and another thing about this, or I think the one that's coming up next week is, um, I read a children's book called monsters from outer space, uh, from weekly reader books that I don't know where I got my copy, but I vividly remember it from being a kid. And, um, it, it's just, it's just usually a little bit of weirdness that doesn't fit into a, uh, a whole episode. Hey, uh, we're gone just a little bit over, but I can't let you leave without mentioning Sito's New Friends. I'm I'm tracking down a copy. Have you ever read it? I have not read it. I have not read it either. So, so just so you know, Sito's New Friends is a book by a an experiencer named Leah Haley, who has kind of dropped off the map recently. She put out a few books uh, probably a decade ago. I read two of them. I think she has three books out. Well, I know she has three because one of them would be Sito's New Friends, which is a children's book. And by all account, it's it's a little uncomfortable. <laughs> it, it, it's it's uh, everything I've read about it and the the pictures I've seen of it. It's you, you shouldn't be teaching kids to be this friendly with weirdos they've never met. It, it's just yeah, especially ones from other dimensions or other planets. Yes, yes yeah. it, it's it's very. It's it's weird. Um, so, and let me just jump in. So, her other books, her other two books, by all accounts, she's a very nice woman, and I know she's been interviewed by Whitley. So, I don't want to say anything against her, but those books, the frantic trauma of her experiences, are not hidden in those books. Like those books were written, and and you can feel the shakiness in her writing. Her voice is so unnerved by what she's been through. So just given that, I don't think you could fake that. No. Um, it, it, and so yeah. I feel strongly she has had real experiences. So like, I don't know the the genesis of that book, but I know you've mentioned it several times on your podcast. Yeah. Um, and it's, it's one of those things where it, it, having these experiences and writing about them for adults it doesn't necessarily translate to to trying to write a children's book about about the topic. It's um, from from what I've read about it and from from what's available, for example, on the Amazon Look Inside app. It it just seems like something somebody who cared about her should have talked her out of. It's like I'm not sure this is a great idea. That sort of yeah, thing. Fair enough. Yeah. yeah. Just because of how it could be misinterpreted and and, and things like that. Yeah. Hey, uh, how do people find your podcast? Um, you can go to anywhere you find podcasts and look for The Saucer Life or go to saucerlife.com, uh, all one word, and you can find 
all, gosh, I guess we're pushing probably a hundred episodes of one kind or another that are, uh, that are up there. Um, and, uh, all the way back to August of 2017, I, I think is when I started. So lots of stuff there, uh, new episodes every other week. Um, and then on off week, sometimes a little 10 minute thing of usually weird, funny, weird stuff. Excellent. Excellent. And Hey, let's just also plug uh Soraya's show. Where did the road go? Yes. Yes. Um, so I'll let you do this. How many episodes do you think oh, we did? Oh gosh. I think it's, it's over. It's, it's 10,000. Yeah. Something it's, in there. <laughs> it's a lot. It's, um, I'm trying to think we've been doing at least I mean, the ones every January or February. Um, so we've been, okay. There's the history of UFO series. Um, we've done, um, 14 of those. Um, so 14, we've done 14 from 2015 through 2020. And that covers basically starting around 1947 and up to present day. Yeah. It's, um, it's amazing. We'll occasionally do kind of a wrap up of like what happened last year after we ran out of, you know, after we got up to. Yeah. So I, I think every February we've been doing that for the last, I think the last three years we've been sort of doing the history of the last year. So yeah, that's been, um, that's been a lot of fun and, uh, has, has always taught me about things I missed over the previous year. And it's been very popular, which is surprising. You know, it's so here just heads up. So, uh, Soraya, who is the host of where did the road go? Invited me and Aaron onto his show. I don't know when the first one was like six years ago or so. Uh, yeah. 2015. Wow. Okay. So five years ago. Like this, so to me, this was the dream show because you are the historian and I could just sit there and go, yeah, Aaron, that was great. What a great way to sum it up. So I felt like I, I deferred to you on many of the things like, you know, uh, Soraya would ask me about some character from, you know, the 1950s that I had only <laughs> heard his name before. And then you could talk extemporaneously off the cuff for, you know, 15 minutes. And I was. Well, and, and vice versa about things I wasn't really up on so yes uh so the dividing line of what i am comfortable talking about um I, I, beyond owls obviously uh <laughs> would be the direct ufo contact experience so i feel like i can talk pretty well to that and not much more in this field in a way yeah which is which is like the especially sort of the abduction era is is, is sort of where i sort of i don't want to say check out but i, I kind of check out a little bit wow and and you're way up on I, that. I don't check out at all yeah so sometimes i check out like whenever i can't you know it's talking about billy meyer man i'm like i like, I, I totally check i, I out, just yeah. can't with billy meyer i i just i just can't <laughs> yeah i agreed agreed he may have had a real event in his life but boy some of it sure doesn't fly yeah 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 some of it. I can't speak to all of it because I check out. I can't, I can't, <laughs> I'm not interested in digging into the research. So I may never know. So this has been a ton of fun. Yes. So uh, the theme of this program, of my program, The Unseen, is kind of like, you know, the majority of it is me talking to, to people who've had the direct contact experience. And I'll tell you, those are not laughy, jokey interviews. Oh, I bet. Yeah, I they, bet. They, get, that's, they get heavy. And so I wouldn't, when I was like, oh, I got this, I got to do one that's fun. <laughs> <laughs> so this has been great. Good, good. Had a lot of fun. Yeah. And when I think we barely scratched the surface, so I may have you back on soon or someday and we can really dig deeper into some of these things because, uh, you know, it's, it's, uh, 
it's a bottomless pit in many ways. Oh yes, yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Yeah. Great. Well, you take you take care. You too. Stay healthy. You too. Stay healthy. Yes. Okay. Talk to you later. Bye. Bye. This is Mike, and I am chiming in after the interview. Now, during this talk, Aaron and I mentioned a few things, and I, and I want to give the listener a way to find those. I won't be putting the links in the show notes, but these are very easily searched out. Two of the things I want to link are articles about George Van Tassel. The first one comes from the New York Times, and it was from 2014. August 20th of 2014, and it was for the New York Times magazine, and the title of the article is Welcome to the Integratron. And the next article comes from the Atlantic Monthly, or I guess more correctly, the Atlantic. I'm showing my age there a little bit. And this article is also about George Van Tassel, and it is titled A Time Machine in the Mojave Desert. And this was published in 2015, in February of 2015. And we also reference a documentary, which I recommend highly. It is titled Calling All Earthlings. And you can find this easily enough at their website, which is callingallearthlingsmovie.com. That's all one word, callingallearthlingsmovie.com. All one word. I also want to do a plug for my comrade in podcasting. His name is Soraya, and his excellent show is called Where Did the Road Go? And this guy does a beautiful podcast where he interviews people on these paranormal subjects. And uh, we might not have made it clear in the talk, but both Aaron and I have been guests together on Soraya's show where we talk about UFO history. And that show has been surprisingly very, very popular. So I'm, I'm actually really proud of the work and the conversations I've done there. It's been a ton of fun. And those are easily searched out on his site, which is called Where Did the Road Go? If you've made it this far, thank you so much. Bye now.